0: Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of the City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world real issues like poverty, homelessness, mental health challenges, affordable housing, and disparities in health care. Today, we're talking about hunger in America among an unlikely group. You may not know it, but over 40% of all students enrolled in colleges across the country are sometimes going hungry. Data on this crisis has been collected by the Hope Center for College, Community, and Justice, and in the fall of 2018, the people there surveyed students enrolled in two- and four-year institutions about their access to affordable food and housing, and what they found after talking to 86,000 students... um, from one hundred and twenty three colleges is that forty five percent of those who responded had some food insecurity over the the, the thirty days prior to the question being asked them fifty six of them were in insecure housing situations at some time over the previous year, and seventeen percent of them had been homeless at some point in the previous year. here at CUNY, our numbers parallel that uh, there was a, a, a story in the newspapers last year. That said, 40% of CUNY students had experienced uh, food insecurity over the, the previous year. According to Inside InsideHigherEd.com, higher uh, to address food insecurity in the state of New York, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo in 2018 mandated that all the state's public colleges and universities establish food pantries on campus. I'm happy to say that here at City College, we had already gotten into that Uh, into that work in 2016, and that was the result of a partnership between uh, the Colin Powell School and uh, NYPERG, the the New York Public Research uh, Interest Group. And this uh, food pantry in 2016 established a fairly small food pantry on campus on the sixth floor of our North Academic Complex, uh, what we call the NAC. The space has the capacity to... um, to hold food, but what it didn't allow us to do was to secure fresh food. And so on Tuesday, October 15th, we cut the ribbon on a new and improved food pantry space, which is on the first floor of the Knack building. And it's been renamed Benny's Pantry. Benny is our College ma- mascot uh, Benny the Beaver. This new space has the capacity to store fresh food, to do more canned food, boxed food. We can host cooking demonstrations. Someday we would like to do a CSA, and we can hold we can host uh, the distribution of fresh fruits and vegetables as well. We'll be stocking the pantry with uh, produce from our various campus gardens. Something we'll talk about a little later. Um, in the studio today is the person who directed the creation of the City College Food Pantry and was also the prime force behind the the earlier establishment of the Colin Powell School and Nypurg Food Pantry in 2016. Her name is Didi Moseleski. She's a senior advisor to yours truly, senior advisor to the City College president. But she's also the executive director of the Foundation for City College and the Office of Institutional Advancement and Communications at the college. Aditi has 25 years of experience in nonprofit fundraising, board management, and NGO startup branding. She's worked with some of the largest nonprofit organizations in New York City and around the world, including the Weizmann Institute of Science, Tel Aviv University, and the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And that's before she came to City College. Um, throughout her career, she's worked to raise millions of dollars for higher education and cultural engagement. Didi Mozaleski, welcome back to From City to the World. This is your second stint.
1: It is. Thank you for having me.
0: So I want to start by um, asking you just to tell us the story of the food pantry. As I said earlier, we began, you and I together, began working with NYPIRG on a smallish food pantry. Um, Really, it was just one little office. And you have been advocating... uh, really for the last three years, for an expansion of the size, capacity, and visibility of a food pantry. So tell us about the new the new arrangement and, and how you got there from the old one.
1: Sure. So I should start by saying um, we're grateful to have had any space. When we came up with this idea, we had no office space, um, no kitchen facilities, nothing. And we got a number of staff to agree to share their space. And so we were in a quad three people and one person agreed to move out of their office so that they could double up with someone else to give us access to a room. And the space was fine. It held enough food for about a month of visits, but it wasn't a place you could have privacy. It wasn't a place that could be secured during the, the visits back and forth. And there was no refrigeration services. And originally we had planned, I don't know if you remember this, to have sort of a, a kitcheny feel. People could come in, sit down, share their meals. Couldn't do that in office. So this new space is beautiful. We are in the ground floor of the NAC, um, right outside of the Hoffman Lounge. It's uh, four times as large as our first space. Um, it includes refrigeration services. We can do cooking demos there now. We can hold six months worth of food. Um, we have cleaning facilities. We can take deliveries almost 24 hours now. We couldn't do that before. and. With the increased visibility, we also anticipate seeing more guests visiting the, the food pantry. so grateful to have had that first space, and even more grateful to have this expanded space and yeah. Oh sorry, I just want to say, and I feel collectively the new space gave us a, a moment to talk to the entire campus community. I think even though the original food pantry was the mission was that it was open to the college, most people. Couldn't understand that if it was in someone's office, it could possibly be for them. And this new space is so central to the life of the college that anybody can see it's it's meant for the whole community.
0: And it really wasn't an accident that the day after we cut the ribbon on the food yeah. pantry, we celebrated World exactly Food Day, That's where right. we had um, you know Eric Adams and, and a number of other speakers mm-hmm. in to talk about the importance of, of of food and and taking care of ourselves, both in terms of alleviating hunger. But also looking after the nutrition of, of, right. of, of people. So you could imagine someone saying, you know, college is where you go to get taught and to graduate. And opening this food pantry opens up a whole other level of care and service. And I wonder, you know, to that skeptical person, what do you say about the, the reasonableness of this as part of the college's mission?
1: I think, and I don't think this is um, just for public universities, but I think for universities in general, publics in particular, the average person who has been out of college 20 years or more doesn't realize that many of our students come here, and they come to us with lots of needs, not just to be educated in a classroom. Um, They need help with career guidance. They need help with mentoring. They need help with networking. Many of our students come and they need help with housing assistance, and most people wouldn't realize that. Um, our food pantry stocks baby food, and that's because we were asked very early on to be considerate to the parents who had small children and had no place else to get food. Nice. So from the very start, we always had something that was accessible for, for children of any age. And I think the the education that actually has to happen is less our students in the classroom and more to the general public. That a college community, you spend... Most of our students spend at least 20 hours a week here. And at some point in time, the things that go on in their homes or their careers are also gonna take, take precedence over their college education. We have to provide for that. Um, we, you and I were talking about this on the way over. If the the college's historic mission is to educate the whole people, it means you have to educate the whole person. And the whole person is not just learning something from a textbook in a classroom or a research lab. So that's, that's why it was important to us to think about this space as, a, as, as broadly as conceived as possible. Um, there are, it's, a, it's, vol- it's mostly volunteer staffed. It's almost all students. Um, we have a, a number of alumni who work in there, young alumni who are recent graduates of the college, and they come in with their ideas about what they hear from their colleagues and their peers. And so, so as the f- pantry grows, I expect that the college also thinks about all the ways it supports a student. Um, you can't talk about student success without thinking about housing, food, career, everything.
0: You know, we spend a lot of time also talking about the particular identity of City College, um, the role we play along with other CUNY schools in upward mobility, the fact that we were the place where um, the idea of educating the whole people um, was invented. Is there a special um, place for addressing food insecurity on a campus with that legacy?
1: So City College is one of seven schools ranked across the nation as being tops in a, in various categories of so upward mobility. City College is ranked number one in overall social mobility. So students come in, and by the time they graduate and go into careers, they've moved up the highest number of percentage and, and, points. And
0: just to be clear, when you say seven schools, you mean seven, seven CUNY schools. Sorry,
1: seven CUNY schools. I don't believe we get the perk of of telling the world that we're number one in social mobility if we don't adhere to the basic principles of our mission, which is to provide for the entire student, so all the needs. Um, we used to run an emergency uh, grant out of the Colin Powell School. The college has a number of emergency grants, and you start to hear all the ways in which a student might get knocked out of being able to be in school, and it can range from anything from needing a MetroCard, um, needing rent, needing support over the course of summer when they don't have their tap and pell in, um, needing having an emergency doctor's appointment, Mm -hmm. and often what we heard during the interviews of students was they were also the third thing down they said was i also don't have you know food to last through the month so i have to juggle between buying this textbook paying my tuition paying rent and buying food and they always put food last because they're trying to prioritize housing and education and what we're suggesting is it all goes together Mm -hmm. so you have to put it together
0: so I have the advantage over over our listeners because I I know you I know a little bit about your background and I, I I will tell you folks out there that Dee wouldn't let me rest until we first established the initial food pantry and then expanded it to the to the facility we currently have. Um, so you're you're driven in this area and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your life and your history and you know what gives you such a passion in this area of work.
1: So I think most of New York City probably has heard this story, so I try not I'll try not to bore the listeners. Um, so I grew up in a household with a single mother um, who suffered from severe mental illness. And when she was having a good stretch, we were having a good stretch. Um, but I can tell you by the 16th of most months, as our food stamps ran out, we started to look at all the ways in which to stretch food for the next 14 days. Um, that continued until I left for college. Um, I spent my first semester living in my car, living with friends, um, working two jobs, going to you know going to school. And I thought once I graduated that would be it. And then I married someone in the Marine Corps. He came uh, home from Desert Storm, and the Marine Corps said, "Congratulations on your service. We're, we're pretty much finished now." And we had to to go to food pantries. And so I think that uh, most people don't realize that the average person that you're going to speak to probably has some kind of background like that some kind of moment where they didn't have something or they couldn't stretch something um and the difference between the difference is that it's easy for me to talk about because it's my story i think the public gets into a space where they believe they haven't um i hear i hear this question a lot how will you protect the anonymity of, of people who go to the pantry and so i often say this we have you know we have private days when you can go by yourself. We have a team of people who will go to the pantry and pick up food for you if you need. And we thought that was gonna be the number one source of request, privacy. It's not been the case. Um, I'm asked more by strangers if there's a need for privacy than I have been by people using the pantry. I think most people who have, who've been to the pantry on a single visit or multiple visits see it as a place where they're engaged. It's not, you're not supposed to be ashamed of going there. It's open to the college, right? Um, For me, I've had the experience of having to go for your annual certification at the welfare office and them asking, well, why are you dressed so nicely? Or, um, you know, your husband's in the Marine Corps. Why do you need a food pantry? And we would never want that experience for someone else. And so for us, it's important to be open Mm -hmm. and offer privacy when it's needed.
0: I want to circle back to this issue of, of, of shame and privacy. Let's talk a little bit about this issue of, of anonymity and shame. You know, the wasn't too many decades ago when electoral politics gave us the idea of the welfare queen. And the idea of the welfare queen was that this is somebody on public assistance who's happy on public assistance and will never get off public assistance because she has it too good. And, you know, built from that idea, we have as a society, at least some people in our society, adopted the idea that, that need is a permanent state of affairs. And there is shame attached to that. And I wonder, uh, first of all, what do you have to say about that characteristic? Where do you, how do you think we allow ourselves to think that way? And, and what do we do as somebody operating a food pantry, but also somebody working in a college space? to address this issue of, of, of the shame that's attached to how we have talked about need and poverty?
1: So I should say this. I, I started by saying I grew up in a household. That was a certain way. I never knew that I was poor until probably about the late 1980s. So as the discourse in, in the U.S. became this idea of the welfare queen or this um, you know, this idea that people with food stamps are driving Cadillacs, like all these all these myths that took shape so that, so that people could find a reason to exclude people from having access. I, I didn't know that we were, were, we, weren't, we didn't have more than anyone else. We had what everyone else had. <laughs> I think about this because <clears throat> it's one more level of a, of, a, of, a su- of a separation. So it's no different to say to someone, well, you use a food pantry, there must be something wrong, and, and you must have a, an issue. It becomes a personal issue, as opposed to it's a societal issue. Um, California just um, passed a bill to stop shaming elementary school students who couldn't pay their lunch bills. Um, Pennsylvania was excluding students from active class participation, active class um, trips, if they didn't pay their food bills. And we're talking a small amount of money, but for someone who can't afford it, it's a large amount of money.
0: And shame that they'd carry for the rest of their lives. You'll never forget that you couldn't go to the museum or the ballpark because your parents couldn't pay $15 for lunch.
1: So. So you take the shame. You take this idea that you should be ashamed because you don't have something. Well, how far away from that is being ashamed that you went to a public university? So I went to a public university. I'm very proud of it. But I'm not networked in the way people who went to private universities are. So that's one more thing to keep me separated. Or the shame of I live in a borough that's not a popular borough. Or whatever the thing is that we use to separate people. And the closer we get to thinking our connections are built through technology the closer we become to not having any actual relationships. So if I can't see my neighbors and if I live in a building as I have for 20 years and I don't know my floor, they can't think of me as a person. Mm -hmm. They just see me as somebody passing. So if I have an emergency or a crisis or a moment of need, they have no way of knowing that. But I guarantee you that all my Twitter friends know or all my Facebook friends know, but those aren't the people who can support me. And I think that in some ways shame is driven by the quietness but it's also driven by this idea that you must be different if something and today it's food um next week it'll be because you couldn't afford your classroom books the week after that it'll be because you didn't do an internship over the summer the way all your friends did elsewhere and after that it's because you took a job as an entry-level job when everyone else got career movements by legacy you know Mm -hmm. legacy ideas Mm -hmm. and so so that's why we're really careful about this um when you cut the ribbon on the food pantry, you you made this comment about we're a community of give and take. And and we talk about this because you've heard some of our colleagues who we work with or who are students or alumni or um, partners in this say, I've also had to myself personally use this particular pantry, and I've also brought things to this particular pantry. Right. And I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And I wish everybody could talk about this. Yeah. But we don't because it makes us... It makes us personally feel different because someone else has personally excluded us from something. So, so we're really careful about this.
0: Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, there's an idea that the categories of people who need and people who give are permanent categories. If you yeah. belong to one, you're going to be there Absolutely. for your whole life. But to have a student say, "I take food from the pantry and I give food to the mm-hmm. pantry," you know, that's that's what you get an appreciation of if you have a deeper and more authentic experience of community. Absolutely. You see the same person in need one year who may not have need the next, mm-hmm. and you recognize, you know, that can be me. Right. And, and, and there's a kind of empathy that grows out That's of that right. experience. Um, so many of your partners in this project, I would say most of your partners in this project, are either students currently mm-hmm. or, as you said, recent graduates. And I wonder, if have, have you noticed, do they bring a certain perspective or enthusiasm to the job?
1: So I should say, even if I had said they couldn't work on this project, they would have done it. Um, (laughs) uh, Perfect example is last year we had a day of celebration for World Food Day. And the team that put it together, they were all either current students, recent graduates, um, in in almost 50-50. That same team expanded this year, all still current students or, or graduates. And they produced the three days of world food programming because for them, this is one of the most important things they do all year. Um, many of those same people also do the Giving Tuesday. So they're constantly thinking about how they can contribute an opportunity for someone else to come back to the college and, and support the college in whatever way. Speaking at the college, contributing to the college financially, volunteering at the college. Um, they think about this all year long. They, they bring to the table the ideas that they hear back in their classrooms, um, the things that they didn't like when they were a student. Um, the way someone may have made them feel when they were looking to navigate a bureaucracy and, and seeking some kind of help. And I watch them go out of their way to make sure that every interaction within the pantry, and we'll talk about later the gardens or any of the community work that we do, that it's inclusive, it's sustainable, it's, um, it's shared widely, it's communicated, and they never think to exclude somebody from the conversation at any level. And I think it's fantastic. I'm not saying you have to be a student or graduate to do that, but the loyalty that they have to this college, it's it's so it's undying.
0: Yeah, I mean the other thing that's really striking about it is um, it's it's beautiful, right? I mean you have artists that have designed Mm -hmm. signage for it that that emphasizes the joy of of sharing food, and and that's a it's it's a real mark of this pantry, I think. you have a second project. You just alluded to it on campus, um, ladies and gentlemen, another project that um, I heard about for about two years before we were able to, to, to set it up. But you're also one of the moving forces behind what we're calling the urban garden at City College. It's not the only garden that we have, but can you talk a little bit about the relationship between our adventures in gardening and 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 the food pantry? Mm-hmm.
1: So I, I should say there's. we were probably a little late to the gardening um universe here. There were already at least two other pretty significant garden movements on campus, and there's also a CCNY Green initiative that uh, I only recently learned started under uh, President Williams' tenure here. Um, what we wanted was a garden that was originally dedicated to the pantry. We, we wanted a place where we could provide our own fresh food back to the pantry, and we were finding it too hard to connect to organizations that would do food deliveries, and so we thought, okay, well, let's, let's attempt this. We have a fantastic partner in NYPERG. We had a number of people who wanted to get this done. And at the exact same time, the MOXIE Initiative came online. And there were faculty and staff in that initiative who wanted to open a teaching garden.
0: And let me just say, the MOXIE Initiative is a new initiative on campus uh, funded by the, the Zahn family and the MOXIE Foundation to establish a fund that would help teach and support faculty members to teach classes in a way that's more engaged so that may mean deeper engagement with community organizations bringing students through more problem based learning and and more project based learning and, and, and so uh, as you said this was something, uh, this idea of gardening was something that Moxie Initiative faculty um, fastened on to Absolutely. early on. Absolutely
1: so we you said two years, actually three years from the day we thought of it to the day we launched the gardens mm-hmm. um, we had a Pretty big launch. Um, People from across the campus came, planted in the in the space. Um, People of the summer worked the garden. We just had a harvest day. I think actually had a harvest day in time for World Food Day. And you have a rooftop garden. I I shouldn't fail to mention this. I do indeed. We tested out some uh, early starters for us, and so it's supposed to be a place of celebration. People are supposed to get to be comfortable going and planting, and be comfortable going and learning from others. Um, the, the faculty within the teaching gardens explicitly wanted to be a place where anybody in the college community can come, learn how things grow, grow their own things, test out new things. Um, the, we had a meeting about a week ago, and I, I mentioned this to, to you and a few other people, and collectively, the gardens of the college believe that if we if we plan out our season properly, we can produce 1,000 pounds of fresh food for the college, primarily to the pantry. And that wasn't something that was insisted upon. That wasn't something that was a mandate of the gardens. That was a collective thinking that was brought to us. In, in particular, Christian Volkman sketched it out and said, you've got the space. We can actually do this work. And and I should really say that we couldn't have any of these gardens without our facilities crew who came out. They For us, they built the flower beds for us, um, David Robinson, who's our AVP of facilities, mapped out the entire cycle of planting. Um, So when I say it's a community project, I mean the entire college community, students, faculty, staff. But can you imagine a year from now producing 1,000 pounds of fresh food for the pantry?
0: Well, I mean, with the mixed success I had in my own personal roof garden, it's a little hard to imagine. (laughs) You mentioned our uh, facilities crew. I can't resist Making a, just a little uh, side pitch here. As we came into the studio today, one of the things you see on campus are uh, jack lanterns that are being put in place by our facilities crew who carved them. If you are in the community near City College, it's going to be a rainy uh, Halloween tomorrow, but we have City College Scarefest, yes. which begins at 5 o'clock, runs to 5 o'clock ish, runs till 10 o'clock, and what we have is in our secret tunnels filled with our historic gargoyles. We have some really scary stuff and some candy and some prizes for jack-o'-lanterns. And so if you haven't heard about Scarefest and... A silent disco. And a silent disco. So if you hadn't heard about Scarefest and you're not super enthusiastic about going out in the rain tomorrow night, come to City College. We are are open to everybody for Scarefest and it's going to be a, a lot of fun. Let me take a step back um, from this specific issue of food insecurity and ask you to, to contextualize this whole package of, of, of projects that we're talking about in the relationship that we're trying to establish between the college and our, and our student community, but also um, faculty, staff, the college community. How does it all fit together for you?
1: So part you know, part of my job in some communications and development, and I'll, I'll just take that universe. Part of the job is to, A, identify what an issue is, so learn about an issue, research it, understand it inside and out. Um, part two is to figure out how to navigate the issue. So we're a large campus with lots of places that one might not know about. So part of it is to communicate out where the places are that can be the most supportive to you, whatever the need is. Um, but I have to say one of the areas that l- lots of us forget is that We have an alumni body of an estimated 100,000 alumni um, who in some way or another are active either by receiving information or sharing information or supporting the college or volunteering at the college. And part of our job for the past three years, I think you and I together, has been to educate our alumni, our donor base, um, people who wanna identify with the college that a student isn't graduation day. A student is every single step they take when they get here. Um, a faculty member and a staff member, every single step they take while they're here, and to help them understand that these are the... um, We have lots of ways to be supportive. We have lots of ways for other people to be supportive, put those two things together. So, you know, using the garden, for example, we did, you know, public outreach. We shared this with all of our various boards. We shared it with city council. We shared it with the New York State Board of Regents because we thought it was important that anybody who should be interested should know. But a lot of it, I have to say, is... Even even as we educate our campus, a lot of it is educating our, our our people who support us in various ways. Um, it's part of the college's mission to, to provide access to excellence. And that means everything that a person does here has to be a quality experience, has to be supportive, has to be engaging, and has to be considerate and well thought out. And that's kind of what these projects have been about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to be honest, Scarefest came from this as well. We thought that it would... What better use of the college campus than to show the, the community at large that regardless of what age you are, there's a space here for you.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, we're pleased to welcome Deborah Hart from the Borough of Manhattan Community College to our conversation. Ms. Hart has a master's degree from Lincoln University and a bachelor's degree from our own Hunter College. She's currently a candidate for a doctoral degree at St. John's University University. She's worked in human services and social work for the past 30 years, specializing in program development and implementation with a strong emphasis on administration. She's also created social service delivery systems that serve a diverse population in private as well as public sectors. And she's currently the student life manager for the single-stop program at BMCC, where she helps students address barriers to their education. She's a strong advocate for student services and ensures that students receive the highest quality service possible. To that end, she spearheads the creation of the BMCC's um, Panther Pantry which I assume doesn't serve panthers it serves <laughs> food um, Ms. Hart welcome to from city of the world I'm really grateful that you're here today
2: thank you so much for the invitation and um, I bring greetings from the bar of Manhattan Community College
0: fantastic uh-huh. we are we are um, pleased to share an island and a system with you um, let's start by uh, by um, having you tell us something about how you're addressing food insecurity at BMCC I mean are there uh, you know one thing I'd like to tease out or are, are there differences in the way um, you the needs you encounter down there uh, manifest themselves and what you'd expect to see at a place like CCNY.
2: Right. Um, So when I started at BMCC in, in 2010, One of the things that uh, was occurring is that the college was already addressing food insecurity among our students. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were doing that through vouchers for the cafeteria. They were doing that through supermarket gift cards for our students. Um, But when I started, what I realized was that we needed to have perhaps a more visual Um, representation of service to our students. Mm -hmm. Um, And so almost immediately, conversations began with um, my vice president, uh, Marva Craig, whom you may know. Um, And um, she has been a tremendous advocate to ensure that we locate the space where this could happen. It took a little while because, you know, as planning anything, any kind of program, um, you need the partners, you need the funding. Um, And so uh, about... A year and a half ago, we were fortunate to identify the space on the campus, to identify funding from Petrie and BMCC Foundation, United Healthcare, through some proposals that we've written, um, and we were able to open our Panther Pantry. And so it's probably one of the proudest moments in in all my 35 or so year career in providing services um, to various populations uh, because it it addressed a tremendous need, not only really among our students, but for their families. So that when we provide the service to our students, which at this point it's about a thousand of our students have taken advantage of the service, um, but we provide for up to three family members. So students wow. are walking away with bags and bags of food for three days, three meals a day. So it's an enormous amount of food—something like six or seven tons of food that we've distributed so far. Um, and you know, so so I—it was probably one of my greatest moments in my career, to just astounding. to be able to do that. That's yeah. astounding. Yeah,
0: you know, we started the program by talking about CUNY-wide issues right. in, in this area, and 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 these surely mirror the food insecurity issues that exist in the broader society. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the evolution of need in American society with all your background in social service administration and, and how that is reflected on our campuses. On our
2: campuses. Well, you know, um, it's interesting because my dissertation is actually going to be in uh, food food insecurity um, on the college campuses. I'm actually looking at the use of food pantries mm-hmm. uh, across CUNY. Um And so, you know, in, in doing some of the research that I've done, the the beginning of addressing food insecurity started around the, the Great Depression. Um, and at that time, the introduction of food stamps, uh, food programs, food assistance programs from uh, President Roosevelt, uh, and that sort of continued in terms of America responding to some degree to hunger. In, in our society um, but one of the the, the the things that it's morphed into is the snap program um, which at times you know is not as helpful to our students because of the policies that are connected to mm-hmm. them so if you have policies where uh, students have to be employed um, you know 20 hours a week in order to be eligible, Then, you know, you have students who may have other who do have other priorities, their children, um, their families trying to keep up a full time schedule that becomes very um, difficult for them to balance all of those uh, um, priorities. And so um, to some degree, we've addressed the issue. Uh, In terms of a a societal um, approach, Um, in other ways, you know, it's become sort of a hindrance when many can't take advantage of the programs because of the policies that exist.
0: It really kind of goes back to something we were talking about in the first half of the show, where if there is an assumption that people in need are always going to be in need, that that is an attribute of who you are, then, you know, why not have somebody work 20 hours a week, which is just enough? To keep you out of any real serious effort to build a career or get an education, or, or, or so. Um, mm-hmm. I'm gonna switch a little bit and talk about um, hunger and nutrition, because mm-hmm. there's a difference between hunger and nutrition, and 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 a lot of times, if we're not careful, you think, well, you know, nutrition, you know, moving to a plant-based diet or thinking about getting calories that aren't empty calories or fresh fruits and vegetables, that's a kind of privileged preoccupation of people with resources. And if you're hungry, we're going to pack you full of empty calories. And, and, and so let's take care of hunger in one population and nutrition in another. And I, I wonder, I suspect I know the answer, but is this a fallacy? Do we need to deal with these in sequence or are there ways that we can deal with hunger and nutrition at, at the same time.
2: Right. And, you know, I think one of the things that we've been trying to do at BMCC is to approach both of those concepts as um, equally important. Mm-hmm. So that when a student comes to us um, hungry, we are providing to them nutritious Food from the food pantry. So when we're purchasing food for the pantry, we're ensuring that, as an example, the sodium levels are not high. Mm-hmm. Um, we're ensuring that the sugar content, you know, in our products are not high, and that's a way of teaching our students that um, even in the time of, of hunger. Uh, you need to be a little uh, aware or conscious of what you're putting in your bodies. Um, one of the things that we've done is we've partnered with City Harvest, mm-hmm. uh, who comes in and teaches our students to cook nutritious meals from some of the items from the food pantry. Chickpeas, for example. I mean, I get a chance to taste all of this stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's usually very excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so our students are not only learning the importance of reading labels, for example, um, but they 're also learning the importance of taking something like a can of chickpeas and being able to put it in salad, being able to saute it, being able to you know maybe grind it up if you have uh, um, something in the home that you can do that with, um, and use it in different ways, and the importance of of the protein in those in that chickpeas. Um, To your body. Um, They're learning things like purchasing water instead of soda. Mm -hmm. Um, They're learning things like um, they go on a visit. They go on a a trip uh, at the last class to a supermarket, the local supermarket. And they're learning the science of the setup of a supermarket, you know, where items are placed um, and generally, generally, the the least um, nutritious items, you know, are usually placed at eye level. To attract, right, and so um, part of our responsibility to our students is to ensure that um, they understand the differences in um, in food items and in reading labels, so that they can opt to have the the more nutritious items that they're purchasing, or even um, when they go to other pantries, you know, um, um, taking as opposed to reaching for the empty calorie type of items.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper into this question of, you know, you hinted at it when you talk about the layout of a supermarket, right. but there is a difference between being uneducated and miseducated, right. and you don't have to dig very far these days. You can go on, you know, if you if you go to Netflix, and you watch, just to name one, a documentary Forks Over Knives, which is mm-hmm. about uh, a plant-based diet. Next thing you know. And um, they suggested if you like this, you're going to like—you you find list upon list upon list of, of documentaries about the meat industry, the sugar industry, the bottled water industry. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I watched just ruined avocados for me, so I'm, I'm, I'm upset about that. Mm. But um, what, what is our obligation as we—or uh, the challenges— to to teaching students not just you have to learn about chickpeas, but maybe you have to learn that a cereal that calls itself a health food is loaded with sugar, and right. and, and and start to to unpack some of those conceptions.
2: Yeah, and and I think some of that is wrapped up in teaching um, our students to read labels. Mm-hmm. You know. I, um, the 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 marketing industry is just so powerful yeah. that you know there are lots of funds lots of money to market um all of the the I don't want to call brands but you know the sugared type of of um products that are very attractive to to our children um teaching folks that Uh, And and this is probably very personal for me. I am diabetic, so I have to read every label of Mm -hmm. everything that I put in my mouth. And so um, teaching folks that teaching our students that, you know, more sugar of more than, let's say, nine percent or eight percent in a product is is probably not the product that you want. To, um, to invest in. Um, so I think it's important for that. The other thing is, I was having a conversation um, very briefly the other day at uh, um, a farmer's market, and um, I was asking about their organic product mm-hmm. that they had, and the young lady said something very interesting to me. She said, you know, um, we market everything as organic. Uh, uh, she said, but quite frankly, if there is a farm that's uphill, <laughs> that's not that's using all the the pesticides and those kinds of things, how do you know that the stuff there is not draining downhill when they water or when they spray or whatever it might be? And that, that was very interesting to me because... There's this push for um, to eat organic foods and of course it's a lot more expensive, but I don't I, I don't know how many people can necessarily guarantee that this stuff that we're getting is organic. I think I think that it's important that we move toward um, fresh food as as Didi was talking about earlier. You know, move toward eating more fresh food. Make a commitment to eat perhaps one fresh thing a day. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's one way to start to educate um, or maybe re-educate our our students and individuals about um, being more healthy, getting Mm -hmm. more nutritious stuff. Make a commitment to eat one fruit. I was raised in South America, and my fruits from South America is not necessarily fruits here. Mm -hmm. And um, there are not many fruits here that I can have because of the natural sugar. Uh, However, I do try to at least maybe have a green um, apple. Mm-hmm. You know, love the days when we used to call them ice apples yep. from Guyana. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, So you know, so move toward a commitment to perhaps one thing, one thing, as opposed to you know the drastic change that one might want to make. Um, but definitely understanding that that making a commitment to read labels, uh, I think, is is one move that folks can make toward educating themselves. Mm-hmm. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. Delia, I know you've been on a campaign against the sugar industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: So so I, as you know, have a heart issue. Um, and my uh, cardiologist said if I did X number of things, he would reduce medicines. And I've been doing them like clockwork and nothing was changing. And then one of those 18-hour Netflix binges brought me through every single documentary uh, to one about the sugar industry. Yeah. And what I've learned blew my mind Um I learned about all the research that was squashed during the 1970s by by Coca-Cola, by Dr. Pepper, um, mm-hmm. by the big mm-hmm. industries, so that they could just keep pumping you up with sugar. And then I learned about the same thing happened with the dairy industry. As the dairy industry was on a decline, they began, but they had so much dairy being produced, they had to put it somewhere, so they put it to cheese. So then all of a sudden, cheese became healthy. But can I tell you, more than sugar or more than dairy or anything, and I don't know if either of you have found this, the thing that has changed my thinking around food has been more cultural identity. So I grew up in a household filled with, you know, everyone's from Louisiana. So we ate everything. Um, I loved a bowl of chitlins. Um, If you cook something in fat, I was definitely going to eat it. And then I started to learn about the the ways in which you go back through your history and you think, well, that wasn't my cultural identity. That was the identity of the plantation owners providing the only foods that were going to keep their, their, their slaves working. So you bulk them up with high carbohydrates Mm -hmm. and high sugar. And then that became somehow that became soul food. And that's not necessarily soul food. It's the leftovers of, of a, a mentality in this country. And so all this stuff has blown my mind. And so, You know, I thought I was doing this really big thing by saying on the foundation side of the college, we were no longer going to provide high sodium and um, sugar-based drinks to to things that we fund, right? So events that we produce. I was just scratching the surface. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And so all this stuff, you put it together and you start to share it. And then it's such common sense. Right. But none of us knew it. Yeah. And so... Yeah. So that's the, kind of the learning process for me.
0: Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I should say, Deborah, you mentioned um, diabetes yeah. at World Food Day. One of our mm-hmm. speakers was 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 Eric Adams, mm-hmm. who was blind. Yeah, was blind yeah. and went to the doctor, and the doctor had all this medicine, mm-hmm. and he said no. He said, I'm going to change my diet. Yeah, that's right. And he sees. Absolutely. You that's know, right. and he, and this is this is a story of two years, so it is yeah. it is remarkable.
2: Yeah. It's very serious in terms of um, not understanding uh, nutrition, not understanding what we put in our bodies, Absolutely. and not understanding the histories, okay. um, you know, of our families and and of our culture, mm-hmm. in terms of diabetes, high blood Absolutely. pressure, cholesterol, um, and um, and not understanding that little changes, they they really don't have to be drastic and they don't have to be, um, you know, huge. And sudden, they can really be incremental, mm-hmm. and they will make a tremendous difference. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to a question that Dean and I talked about earlier in the show, and it's this question of of shame, mm-hmm. and this question of uh, you, you know, if you need help, is it embarrassing to to get help? And I wonder how you'd handle that at, at BMC. See, but also I, I, I wonder if you could draw on your experience outside of the college because you have these years of social service work. Right. And how do we deal with this question of shame?
2: Yeah. yeah um, I think about maybe about 30 or whatever years ago when I started, um, really got serious about being in social work. I worked in our communities. I worked in the AIDS when um, the AIDS epidemic was really rampant and that was a period of true shame. you know um, yeah. People did not want to admit how they became infected. Um, I lost a sister, my older sister, um, to the illness. and um, I, I found that the only thing that worked for me working with the populations who were affected um, was to have people understand that they had someone that they could trust. Mm-hmm. They had someone that um, they can depend on, um, and someone who was going to love them no matter what. Um, it's the same set of characteristics that I've carried with me for the past 30, 35 years of doing this work. Um, you know, it's I'm blessed to be able to be doing the work that I do. It's my passion. It's my life's work. It's, and so. It's the same approach that I have um, with the students who come to us. And so when students come, we understand that there are some cultural barriers that prevent folks from seeking help um, and, um, and accepting help accepting help i mean sometimes it kind of blows my mind in some ways because i have students who say um well you know i'm from this part of the world and our people are going to you know we're going to take care of each other Mm kind of thing and and i tell them i said you know i really do understand that but i know that when you need us we're here to make sure you'll be okay because ultimately the goal is to make sure you make it through school and beyond and we want to be sure that you do that healthy mm-hmm. and we want to be sure that you do that you know um in feeling good about yourselves and so um i don't think there's any anything that um that is more important than ensuring that people know that when they come to you you're going to be warm you're going to be um, supportive and you're going to be non judgmental.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I want to talk with both of you um, about the relationship between this work and our student success mission. I, I just have been reading the Chronicle of Higher Education, did a, a, a bound report mm-hmm. called uh, The Truth Behind Student Success. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they divide it up into four categories. And the first is, Do we have the data that we need? And the second is, you know, are we in the classroom teaching as effectively as possible? And the third is, um, do we have the academic supports that students need, like mentoring and tutoring and and all this? But the fourth section is about supporting the whole student. And one of the things that comes out in there is that students who feel like they are, that they are acknowledged, that they're cared for, that they're being taken care of, that somebody is paying attention to them, graduate at a much higher rate they 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 stay in school at a much higher rate and so i want to so that's not the answer to my question but it sets it up what's next how do you build on this and link it back into a student success mission both at the senior college level and and at bmcc
1: so i i will say for city because i hear this often i we have to find a way to get people who support us to stop saying things like um, this belongs to someone else to fix whoever the someone else is mm-hmm. um, it belongs to a city agency or it belongs to a state agency or a federal agency or a high school or high school mm-hmm. or an elementary school um, the students who come here came from the high schools that were already saying are under resourced came from the elementary schools that we already know are under resourced and so for as as colleges across the, the country we have to figure out a way to change the tenor around higher education, and education in general. I think we we forget that, you know, there's there's this anecdote that in elementary school, uh, I think it's 70% of New York City students, the reason why they don't like to close for snow days is because 70% of New York City school children rely on two meals a day from New York City public schools, and that's why they're so reticent to close um, on snow days. Well, it's anecdotal, they have data, but it's become this story that we tell each other. But it's indicative of the fact that we have a million plus students, and of those million students, they're hungry. They're suffering from home, you know, homes that may not be secure. Um, they have issues of domestic violence, mental illness, health issues. And so I think the education, again, we're just not getting the public's attention on this. And, and I think you and I talked briefly yesterday. I can't tell if it's Brown versus Board of Ed, or if it's a civil rights movement, but you can see the change. That the moment access became available to everyone, access started to be den- denied to those same people that access was supposed to have been mm-hmm. open to all. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how we change that, but it's gotta be a constant, constant drumbeat. Mm-hmm. And for me, student success is, like I said, it's the minute somebody applies to your school, right? That's right? And the second we accept, and the moment they step foot on this campus, and our our mandate is to them primarily, but it's also to the people they carry with them. Their parents, their sisters, their brothers, their mm-hmm. children, you have to get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's the entire oh.
2: family. Um, and I know at BMCC, we have taken on um, the, the charge, I guess, um, to start to create a culture of caring. And um, I believe within CUNY, we're moving toward that. And, and what that basically means is, is meeting the students where they are, addressing their needs, mm-hmm. filling the gaps, and, um, and, and just helping them through the entire journey yeah. and and you know and we're very serious about that in our strategic plan it's one of the things that um that we are working toward ensuring that we can accomplish. And so we have this humongous set of work going on at BMCC. Um, I actually chair the uh, co-chair with uh, Professor McFadden, um, one of the subcommittees um, um, around uh, strengthening the culture of care for faculty, staff, and students. So it's, it's the, entire, the entire community that we're looking at to see the support systems that need to be in place, to, to mm-hmm. look at the curriculum uh, and see what needs to be included in there in terms of culture of care. And we've really just embarked under uh, interim president books on this journey. Um, and so early next year we should have some reports mm-hmm. that um, I know will produce some phenomenal work because just in this short time that we've been doing this, the committees are very serious about looking at all of the issues, looking at all of the ways that we can help our students to succeed, support our faculty, as well as our staff, and they're very serious about, you know, producing some um, good recommendations out of this, and so um, part of the success for students is the success for faculty and staff as well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you see, Um, and so it's that entire, um, it's it's the entire, um, you know, journey for all of us to ensure that our students are successful,
0: Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, listen, this has been a a real pleasure talking to both of you and learning about the good work that you're doing on on our our two campuses. I'd like to say to everyone outside the studio, thank you for listening to From City to the World. Um, Special thanks to our guests, Didi Mosaleski, the executive director of the Foundation for City College, and Deborah Hart, student life manager for the single stop program at BMCC, and the founder of the Panther Pantry. I love that name. The show is produced by Angela Hardin and yours truly, Vince Boudreau. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of City College. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time on From City to the World.